what got you interested, Gray, in affect theory, and what is it? Introduce it, and why is it important? Yeah, affect theory. I got I got really interested in this idea of affect theory because I was actually reading Herman Bavinck, of course, and and Bavinck has some striking comments in his Philosophy of Revelation, where he basically said that before thinking or willing, we feel the existence of God, and some other passages he would say something like. The human soul and the depths of human personality eludes rational elucidation and precedes self-consciousness. So, so behold, so below this this threshold of consciousness, there's this unconscious life that is really rich, that is embodied. This idea that the body remembers things and knows things even when you're not consciously aware of something. So, so Bavink has all those arresting passages, and and as I was reading Bavink on that. I was also reading the 19th century, sorry, 20th century philosopher Martin Heidegger, and his being in time, and he basically said that human existence in its everydayness is something that is pre-conscious. It's something that is pre-linguistic. That human beings are involved in their environments in ways that we're not aware about. So affect theory is this idea in. The in, in religious studies and also in just the study of of human phenomenology, where it recognizes that human beings are formed primarily by their bodily knowing, their their unconscious life, these um, behaviors, emotions, feelings, thoughts that precede conscious awareness, and that these things actually form our worldviews, form our beliefs more than we think. So affect theory. Oftentimes is is couched as a response to what's been called the linguistic fallacy, or Hubert Dreyfus would call it the epistemological tradition. This fallacy, this idea that human beings are primarily driven by cognition, by rationality, by the space of reasons, by propositional thinking, when actually it's the other way around. They would say that linguistic fallacy is an enlightenment idea. This view of the human being as a detached philosopher. When actually most of your everyday living is that you're not a philosopher, you're not thinking consciously at your desk. You're making, you know, eggs and bacon, and you're not thinking about cracking the eggs. You're thinking about something else, but your body knows these things. And for some reason or other, even when you say you believe something, your body also has different habits that sometimes contradicts your belief. So why is that the case? So affect theory is trying to give an account for that, and shows that again, this is a linguistic fallacy that that your beliefs don't drive your behavior, but rather your bodily behavior drives your beliefs. So that's where I started really diving more deeply into this and actually seeing that that what Bobbing says anticipates so much of what affect theory is saying. My my head went straight to some of the insights of cognitive linguistics, you know, in the last forty years or so, where the the idea being that uh, well, in my own work, like metaphor theory, that um, rather than metaphors being kind of derived from this like high literary style or something like that that actually metaphors constitute just our, the, the they derive from our basic root experiences things that we think we already know so you know death is a journey we actually have trouble philosophically theologically metaphysically physically describing death but we know what it is because we've experienced it in our daily life it's a departure it's a it's a saying goodbye, you know, all of these kinds of kinds of things. Is that related in some way, or is that kind of in the same similar orbits, or are those two different, totally different things? Yeah, I think it's, it's definitely related uh, because affect theory definitely 
impacts your view of language. Is thought or meaning coinciding with language or is thought and meaning something that precedes language, right? And I think if you're an advocate of affect theory and you're, you're observing human phenomenology, you're actually recognizing that there's meaningful human patterns that is prior to its linguistic formulation, right? So applied to religious studies is really interesting because now you have this category of understanding why it is that despite your growth in Christian doctrine, right? You still continue to struggle with the same sense. Why is it that despite, you know, you're both Christians, you could be on different sides of the political spectrum, even though, let's say, you're both confessional Presbyterians. Why is it that this doctrine that you hold so dearly to your life has not affected, let's say, your political inclinations or how you treat your neighbor, right? So three other concepts are, are tethered to affect theory. After the linguistic fallacy, the, the concept of ontophenomenology, paracognition, and intransigence. Ontophenomenology, that's a really fancy term, but all it means is that affect theory wants to get at the everyday existence of human life. This is a phenomenology of human existence. It's, it's getting at everyday common human behavior prior to conscious awareness, right? So Heidegger would say that this is ontology prior to the study of ontology. It's, it's human being and its thrownness and its everyday existence that we're, we're really interested in. Second is paracognition. This idea that therefore meaning and affection, right, directs human behavior alongside cognition or preceding cognition or after cognition. But there is not a, a one-way causation between language or cognition to behavior. Oftentimes it's bodily behavior and affection that informs cognition. And then thirdly is this notion of intransigence, which is the idea that your body is way more difficult to shape and change than your mind is. You could, you could change someone's mind uh, through an argument, but their body would still continue to believe the same things so that their habits actually remain the same. And oftentimes uh, the body and its intuitions informs your reason such that, again, reasoning becomes a way of, of basically bias confirmation, right? And, and what's really interesting about affect theory is that this is actually meant to be giving an account of religion, especially in Donovan uh, O'Shafer's work, it's giving an account of religion that is evolutionistic and animalistic, that religion is actually not uh, emerging out of the space of reasons, giving you good reasons to believe in God's existence, so on. Actually, religiosity comes from these evolutionary patterns of embodied living, right, and, and everyday existence that actually you can see the same things in animals, that animals have ritualized practices, too, and you see commonality between animals and human beings. And I'm asking the question, what if by drawing bobbing? Or from bobbing, we can actually reinterpret religious affection and actually say this is not out of an evolutionary origin, but rather what if all the way down in our bodies and in the way in which we are always in the world, we're living under God's revelation, we're made in God's image, we're affected by common grace. And so to say that religiosity comes from animality or our bodily existence is not going to undermine religion. And it's not going to say that religion has exclusively physical forces underneath it, but that actually physicality itself is enchanted by God's revelation and so on. So that's what Bobbing was I trying like to say. That. That. Enchanted by. Yeah, so that's using Charles Taylor's term, perhaps. But, but, but Bobbing was trying to show that like in the primordial pre-conscious life of human existence, we're always in touch with God. Before we think of it, we're always in touch with God. And hence... This, I think, has incredible implications to say the noetic effects of sin, because, again, suppression becomes something not 
rational, but something that is just in the in the in the depths of your soul. You want to get get away from God because you feel guilt, not because you have an intellectual reason against his existence, but because in the depths of your soul, in the depths of your body, you always want to run away from him because there's a sense of shame and guilt. So so these things are not byproducts of evolution, but rather are it's science that we're made in God's image all the way down. Not just our thinking is made in God's image, not just our rationality, but but our bodies as well. So Heidegger effect theory and so on can be really put to service to Christian theology in that respect. Great. I've, I've been hearing more about this kind of coming out of the area of neuroscience and just even some of the popular writings. I think of the master and his emissary by Ian McGilchrist, which is kind of popular and, and was uh, out there in the air uh, about 10 years ago or so. But you know, he uses the the metaphor of, you know, a guy sort of riding an elephant, you know, and, and, and in the in the modern world, we like to think that the guy who's riding or, or steering the elephant is the one who has all the control, you know, but as soon as that elephant sees, you know, some grass that it wants to eat, it doesn't matter how hard the guy pulls in the other direction, the elephant's going to go eat the grass. And he says, you know, the same is true with kind of the way that, I mean, he's using the, he's using the two hemispheres, the brain to talk through this, but, you know, one hemisphere is kind of more emotional, volitional. The other one is more of the rational. And he's arguing, you know, we like to think with our cognition. We like to think with our, with our, our logic and our rationality that we're guiding the self, but we're actually, as you say, you know, guided by these evolutionary forces, you know, the way that he depicts it. And it's interesting because I think you're absolutely right. It does present in some ways, you know, it, it presents a corroboration of a biblical view of the self, which is that the self is a thoroughly integrated, non, you know, inextricable thing, you know, that the human heart and the body are deeply connected and bound together. I think you find this very clearly in the Hebrew scriptures, you know, where this idea of the heart is not differentiated from the rationality of the person, you know, that's a later Hellenistic idea. Now, one of the critiques of this, though, is that it kind of gives rise to a sense of like determinism. Um, and I'm thinking about how Bavink and how reformed thought would help us understand this, up, you know, outside of or, or without falling into the trap of saying, therefore, I have no control. I'm just a function of my animal instincts. You know, how do I actually change? You know, rationality, I can change. I can think of new things and I can accept new ideas, but how do I change myself? How do I change my body? Yeah, that's a great question. And Bavink really wrestled with that question. And I think the way he gets at it is to say that the self is not reducible to the body. It's definitely impacted by the body and its particular physical history, but it's not reducible to it. And, and actually, he says, when you consult the works of psychology and even first-person experience, the depths of your personality is a whole realm of unconscious thoughts, feelings, actions that, that you don't even, you're not even able to articulate. The, the, yourself is a mystery to yourself. And even when you think that you can give an account of your body's physical history, let's say, there are things that you do that can't be reducible to your body's actions or habits, nor is it reducible to your mind's uh, patterns of reasoning. So the self eludes both body and mind, and it's the center of both body and mind. So Bavink, throughout his writings, especially as he matured towards his later years, he really tried to articulate that personality 
is the link between body and soul because personality explains the unconscious life of the body on the one hand and the mystery of the mind on the other, that the mind finds itself thinking about things that it has no control over. There's this, this heart, you know, to use that, that Hebraic language, the heart that no one can understand, the heart that is deceitful of all things. What is that, Boffing says, other than personality? So that's really interesting. It makes me think, I was already thinking about James 3, and then you mentioned you threw in the heart there, and I'm, I'm doubling down now. Because one of the, you know, Jesus picks a body part, right? The heart to, to associate with this, this maybe precognitive or whatever impulse of our lives. And it, it's interesting to me, we've kind of grappled onto that. And we think about the soul and the immaterial aspect of our life as divine or as, as um, image of God, but not the material components of our, our body. And, and you know, the premise here that you have to accept is that, no, actually, the material aspects of ourself are just as much, uh, or at least a component part of what it means to be image of God than just the, the immaterial, the, the spiritual. Um, it's interesting, James 3, you know, what Jesus does, the, the heart is the root, and the, it produces the fruit on the tree. The heart is the, the well, uh, and the well is either salt or clear water, sweet water. Um, all of that is given over to the tongue in James 3. The tongue is the rudder that drives the boat. The tongue is the well from which either um, sweet water or salt water will come. The tongue is the fire which sets on uh, the, the forest ablaze. It's the, the guide to the body. So you've got, it's interesting that you've got a different body part uh, in yeah. James 3 that's associated with kind of the movement of our, of our humanity. Yeah, so, so you want a... a christianly holistic account of theological anthropology right and this was one of bobbing's critiques of kind of older faculty psychology he still believes in it this idea that there is you know the will and there's the faculty of desiring there's the faculty of knowing and so on and and bobbing says that it's very good to talk about the faculties of the soul in this respect but we have to give an account of the unity behind the faculties on the one hand and how the faculties are connected to the body on the other and you're right tommy that that organic imagery is all over the bible this the body is not just a hindrance to the soul and it's not just an instrument of the soul but it's also doing things that expresses the soul you know so it's 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 good that you pointed out from james chapter three i will say one more thing um reading simeon zal's recent book the holy spirit and christian experience was really useful he tried to show how effect theory can can really inform a christian understanding of sanctification and justification he's, he's interested in how do doctrines shape us affectionately and not just doctrinally or, or rationally and what i'm trying to do with bobbing here and i'm presenting this paper at, at the bobbing centennial in Compton on bobbing and effect theory is to show that by using bobbing there's other doctrines that we can show how affect theory really could play a key role namely common grace general revelation and just a general theological anthropology because of his holistic understanding of the doctrine of revelation and, and who we are as human beings.